Our reading this morning is the first chapter of Titus. You can find it on page 965 of the Pew Bibles and you may prefer to follow it. Follow the text in the overhead behind me. Paul is writing to Titus and he begins his letter with a description of himself and God's purposes through him. Titus chapter 1. I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. 
This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thank you, Betty. Uh, friends, we are going to start a three-week series just in this holiday period in the book of Titus. On uh, Today's theme is Godliness, Truth and Leadership. Let me pray that God would speak to us from this text. Lord God, we open ourselves up now to your spirit and your word, that we would understand your word and that we would live in light of it and that we would be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, Christian leadership in a church can either build up or it can destroy. We see in the fallen high-profile leaders who are often in the media the damage that takes place to the Church of Jesus Christ through the failings of false teachers or immoral pastors and leaders. We saw it in the, uh, the sacking of Brian Houston, former senior lead pastor of Hillsong, due to a number of indiscretions, in the sacking of the New York Hillsong pastor for adultery and immorality. We see false teaching articulated through Christian leaders in some places who support things like same-sex marriage or are themselves in same-sex relationships and call that good. We see it in Christian leaders who are bullies and are narcissists, who control and dominate their churches and their colleagues. And many people come out in protests against senior leaders who are behaving like that in places. Some deny even the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I heard of one minister in the UK who said, oh, I'm not sure if I believe in God at all. He was a minister in the Anglican Church in England. Not sure he believes in God at all, but he is a minister. Friends, as we launch this three-week series in Titus, we must remind ourselves that the church has to be vigilant in guarding the gospel and in promoting holiness and godliness in its people. And we'll see that uh, the things that Titus dealt with in the first century are similar to the things we dealt with, deal with today. People struggled with moral failure and error among Christian leaders, and it was difficult also for them to live consistently Christian lives in the world that was hostile to the gospel. I think we're returning to the position of the first century church. Although their physical and cultural circumstances are different, their spiritual lives are similar to our own. And Titus lays before us a path to godliness, as Paul writes to Titus. 
He affirms the truth that the knowledge of truth leads to godliness. So you know the truth, it ought to lead into godly behavior. Paul is also passionately concerned that the true gospel is passed on to the next generation of Christians. And it's easy for the gospel to be lost because if I start failing to teach the gospel and then people start believing my new gospel or my less than a gospel, in time within a generation, there's no one left in the church, right? And uh, one of the ways in which churches and whole denominations have gone astray is that the leaders have moved churches from the main truth of the gospel to something else, and within a generation, those churches are dead. And we're seeing that happening across the globe. So we need to pass it on to others. So who was Titus? Uh, a Gentile. He was uncircumcised, seems to be one of Paul's converts. Paul says he is my true son in our common faith, an important co-worker with Paul in his ministry. We know that he went with Paul when Paul met with the Jerusalem leaders to discuss the gospel. He mentions him in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Paul sent him to the Corinthian church to organize a collection of funds in Corinth for the poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 8. There's no reference to Titus, which is interesting, in Acts, but he's mentioned 13 times in the rest of the New Testament. A leader. We don't know very much about how Titus came to be in Crete, nor how the gospel came to Crete in the first place. Some believe that Paul was uh, released from his imprisonment in Acts 28 and then went on a fourth missionary journey and ended up in Crete, but we can't be sure about that. But what is Titus's task? What's the thing that Paul asked him to do right at the beginning? He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order or straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there is, right at the beginning, a job of straightening out or putting in order what was left unfinished. Paul says, I haven't quite finished what we meant to do. Now, things aren't quite right. I want you, Titus, you have a job. Straighten it out. Sort it out. Get it right. There are false teachers causing havoc. I want you to listen to this language from the book of Titus. Chapter 1, verse 13. Rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Chapter 2, 15. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Chapter 3, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time after they have nothing to do with them. So there's rebuke, there's teaching, there's encouragement, there's reminding, there's warning. He has a job to do. There are issues in the church. It's not comfortable. And what he's meant to do is appoint elders, he says. Elders are the leaders in the church. Godly men who are going to ensure that true doctrine is taught and people are encouraged to holiness. He uses two words here in the first one is an elder. In the Greek, you think about the different languages you use, the elder is, means presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian. The other word he uses is overseer in verse 7. And they're used interchangeably. 
elder overseer, which we get sometimes translated bishop or episkopos in the Greek, and we get the Episcopalian ruled by bishops. So you get the Episcopalian church, the Anglican churches. They use some of those things. But what we notice as he uses it here, an elder and overseer effectively does the same thing. They care for the church, they shepherd the church, they teach the truth to the church. Elders and overseers are effectively pastors. Uh, the Bible also uses the word of shepherd and pastor to describe the same role. 1 Peter chapter 5, Acts chapter 20, the leaders are called to shepherd the flock that is under their care. That's the whole idea of pastoring. Ephesians 4.11 says there are pastor teachers in the church. So when you see elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, that's what I'm doing. If you're wondering what I'm doing here. Uh, and if you want to, it's a bit scary now. Think me, think David, think Matt, who are the teaching pastors in this church, the shepherds. Because we're called to be a certain type of people. So as I preach on this, you probably need to be thinking, yeah, I'm not too sure about that, Ange. Do you need some help? <laughs> or maybe Matt or Dave. I'm allowing you to critique us this morning. Because this describes what these elders ought to, ought to be like. So verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In other words, your pastor teachers, your elders, need to know the word of God well so they can teach and correct and train the congregation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7, alongside the description of an elder's character is also the ability to teach, called to teach. Friends, we're called to teach the word of God in a way that is faithful. And I must say that over the 26 years that I've been here, there have only thankfully been a couple of times I've had to go up to someone and say, no, you cannot teach that in this church. Stop. That is not welcome here because what you are teaching is contrary to the word of God and what you are bringing into this church is not consistent with the scriptures. Now, I've had to do that a couple of times. Thankfully, not often, because we are united around the truth of the gospel. There was teaching coming in that was going to divide the church. Teaching that was going to set people, I think, away from a confidence in what the Bible teaches. And as pastor teachers, elders, we had to say, no, you can't bring that here. What are true teachers versus false teachers? So what's the mark of a true teacher? Um, in behaviour and doctrine, behaviour, high reputation, a good family man, blameless. Now that's... That's a big word, isn't it? Impeccable moral standards, high reputation, beyond reproach. That's what God wants in leaders. Faithful to his wife. Originally, the, or the version would say, husband of but one wife. And we think, in others, they're monogamous. There's one wife at a time. In other words, don't have multiple wives. Be faithful to your wife. Believing children. This is an interesting one. Faithful, not rebellious, not into wild living. Well, you think, at what point does that take place? Because kids grow up and have their own faith, and many of, almost every pastor I know has had kids who've gone wild and no longer follow Jesus. They're atheists, agnostics. Even the great John Piper from America, that we read all these books, one of his sons is wild and has a TikTok uh, 
website which has as many followers as John Piper denouncing John Piper and his theology. Right? So you can't guarantee. So what's he saying? I, uh, John Stott puts it this way, it is legitimate to ask for how long the faith and conduct of children remain their parents' responsibility. The text suggests that Paul has childhood in mind. The word children techna usually refers to youngsters who are still under their parents' authority. The age of this varies in different cultures. Somewhere the kids have to own up for themselves, but generally saying you need to make sure you're looking after your kids, you're responsible, you're parenting, you have discipline and so on. As a parent, you don't just let your kids run wild, you're involved in their lives. What not to be, not overbearing, don't be arrogant, self-pleasing, self-indulgent, not quick-tempered, don't be a hot-headed pastor. Now, I find it strange to read these words, don't you? I don't know, how many hot-headed pastors do you know? Don't put your hands up. (laughs) Because sometimes... I've run into some hot-headed pastors, not given to drunkenness. I'm good with that one. I just want to tell you, I don't drink anything, so I can't get drunk. <laughs> oh, that's one off the list. Not violence. I gave up playing competitive soccer years ago, so that one's done. <laughs> I've watched some very godly Christian pastors on that soccer field and I tell you the stuff that happens Mr. Hooker, Mr. White and a few other people (laughs) because you know if they're coming through and you've got to take them down you know you sometimes you've got to take them out right on a sporting field and aggression comes up and so I stay away from those things it just helps me in my (laughs) non-violence but some people have a tendency to violence sadly abuse and control, manipulation. Not the Christian leader, Paul says. And if they are violence, then we need to do something about that. That needs to change. Not pursuing dishonest gain, not greedy, no embezzler. You're not in it for the money. You're working out how to rip people off. Friends, I read this story 10 years ago of the terrible situation of a megachurch pastor in Korea, the Reverend David Yongi Cho. And I've read some of his books. And I was stunned to hear that at that stage, he was 78-year-old, largest Pentecostal church in the world, was convicted of embezzling $12 million. I thought, how how does that happen? Sentenced to three years in prison. Convicted of directing officials to buy stocks from his own son at four times the market price. And the church subsequently lost $12 million. And you think sometimes, how do we get caught up in doing these dumb, illegal things when we are godly preachers and teachers and leading thousands of people? And I think the warning is there for all of us. Everyone can fail, but by the grace of God. And it then goes to list other positive characteristics. Hospitable. You like to be with people, hang out with people, be loving to people, welcoming people. Lover of good. Self-controlled. Sensible of sound mind. Upright. Holy. And we've sung about holiness this morning. Disciplined. You don't want an undisciplined pastor, teacher, elder, overseer who never knows what's going on isn't focused, can't get up in the morning, can't get to work on time, 
Can't discipline time in the Word to study the Word to prepare a sermon. Or can't focus time to spend people, time with people to disciple them. And then in doctrine it says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Know the word well, encourage others with it, refute error, gather sheep, warn off the wolves that are around. So when we look for pastors and leaders, let's go beyond that to home group leaders, to ministry leaders as the church gets larger, people investing. Often you won't get, you'll get taught by me on a Sunday, but you'll get taught by your home group leader during the week. And what they teach is very significant as well. So we want our home group leaders to know the word of God well. Our youth leaders who are teaching your children, what are you looking for? Just the popular, well-spoken people? No, you're looking for the godly people. And I, in fact, I think you're looking for fat people. You're looking for fat people. Faithful to God's word and, life, and in lifestyle. Available, surrendered to God. Say, God, use me. Teachable, humble and willing to learn and grow. You never thought about fat being so positive in the past, have you? <laughs> Faithful, available and teachable. That's what we're after in the church. But what are the characteristics of the Cretan false teachers? And they, they get a rough deal here, don't they? Cretans always. I've got friends from Crete. <laughs> Liars, gluttons. But these people in the church were rebellious, unruly, insubordinate. Full of meaningless talk. They talked well, but it really wasn't centered on the word. Empty-headed is the word. Vain talkers. Deceivers. Self-deceived and deceive others, verse 10. Do things for dishonest gain, verse 11. Liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, verse 12. Minds and consciences corrupted. They think they know the truth, but they're corrupted. Detestable, disobedient, aren't fit for doing anything good. And then in their doctrine... There seemed to be some, a circumcision group, seemed to be some Jewish influences here. And you know, the circumcision group would uh, argue that you need to be circumcised and obey the Old Testament law to be saved. They seemed to be keen on following Old Testament food laws here. When Jesus said, no, no, all food is good, it's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. Because that verse 15, I think, is a reference to this. Have a look at that. To the pure, all things are pure. Those saved by God, transformed by the Spirit, they can eat any food and it's good. But you see, they are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. It seems to be like they're saying, no, they can't eat these foods because they're not good, they're not right. And Paul said, no, 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 to the pure, those who know Christ, all is pure. Don't worry about what you eat. Worry about how you live. Worry about how you preach. He says they follow Jewish myths. And the commands of people who reject the truth. Are these people always so bad? It's a terrible description, isn't it? You think of false teachers, people who teach uh, uh, in the cult, for, for example. I remember one cult group called the Children of God. You ever remember them, the family of love, Children of God? Girls would go out and use sex to entice people to come and join their cult. Absolutely bizarre and evil. Young girls, this is like, and, and I think 60s, 70s, 80s. And it's interesting with the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, at the moment they, uh, they sit on every, at every railway station, don't they? They're out in force, but they're not pestering me now. 
They stand there waiting for you to go to them. They have their books. And I walk past them. I'm waiting for, I keep walking past them, waiting for one of them to stop me. They smile at me and they let me go. But I remember when they used to knock on my door and my front door growing up in Marrickville and um, they said, hi, we're, we're here just to talk about God. Have you thought about heaven or something? And I said, who are you? I said, oh, you know, we're just talking about spiritual matters. I said, who are you? What's your church? What's your background? And it took me about five minutes before they owned up. I said, you are Jehovah's Witnesses, aren't you? Oh, yeah, but you're just talking about God and the Bible. I said, no, 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 tell me who you are. And that's deceptive. If you don't want to give me your name right at the beginning, that's deceptive. And then I would argue with them from the scriptures, and then 20 minutes later, we would say goodbye to one another. But whatever happens, we, most cults are not... You wouldn't see them as described the way Paul describes them here. They just believe different things to us. They're trying to be good and moral and so on. But Paul says, no matter what, they're under the judgment of God. And they, if you listen to them, they will lead you astray. Here they're ruining whole households. And cults often present parents as enemies. I've had friends who left into a sort of a Christian cult. They say, don't trust your parents. Move out of your home. Move into a group home with others. Don't be like them. Don't go back to your old churches because they're not really legitimate. Come to us. They cut off their family, them from their family members. Friends, liberal theologians in churches uh, deny the divinity of Christ. They deny the resurrection of Christ. They... uh, promote immorality. Church leaders all over the place. They cause terrible damage. And then there are those who teach prosperity theology. God wants you to make you healthy and wealthy. Just believe, just give to his work and it all will be right, which leads to great disappointment often and great despair in people. Why is it so important to get it right, number three? Well, what are the consequences of getting it wrong? If we don't teach the truth, we don't lead to holiness, is that they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. False teaching for dishonest gain. It's destroying families, disrupting families. It's leading to divisions, leading to arguments. It's not leading to truth. It's not leading to spiritual health. We must stop this, he says. It's only because God has spoken. You might say, oh, well, that's okay. And, you know, Baptists, they believe this. Someone else believes something else. And the Muslim believes something else. And the, uh, the other theologian believes something else. Yeah, it's all the same in the end. We all end up in heaven at the end. It's not what the Bible teaches. Tony Payne puts it this way in his uh, Bible study on Titus. Whenever we're inclined to think that a particular brand of false teaching doesn't matter too much, or that mutually incompatible theologies can exist comfortably side by side in a congregation, then we betray how much we have been influenced by the mood of the day. We cannot come to know the true and living God by intuition or by rational thought, by running an experiment or by seeing him on the back of our eyelids. The Bible is quite clear on this. We can only know anything about God because he reveals himself to us in the scriptures. You can't just believe anything and you're all good. It's what the scriptures teach us. And friends, right at the beginning of, we'll now come back to the first three verses in Titus. Listen to what Paul writes. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who he is, he's bringing the truth, to further the faith of God's elect, God's chosen ones, and their knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. That's what I'm here, to bring the knowledge of the truth that will lead to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. Right? So firstly, really key, the knowledge of the truth that he is bringing leads to godliness. Sermons, Bible studies, theologi theological education. It's not about intellectual stimulation. It's not simply to know more, but to be transformed by the word. Okay? And faith and knowledge rests on the hope of eternal life. We live in light of eternity. If life stops at death, let me say this clearly, if life stops at death, eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever you like. You got 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 40 years, that's it, dead and buried. But if there is the hope of eternal life, if there is life beyond the grave, if we live in light of eternity, then our lifestyle and our character ought to be affected by it. We believe the truth and are changed by it. What's the value of true and godly teachers? Friends, for 26 years, I've been preaching the scriptures. And before me, for another 40 years, whatever it happened to be, 43 years, <laughs> they've been preaching the scriptures in this place. So that we can hold to the truth of the Bible. That we can continue to be a Bible-believing, evangelical, Christ-centered, Bible-soaked church that makes a difference. But it can change quickly unless we persist in this and continue in this. So I urge you to be praying that our pastors and teachers will continue to teach the truth. It's absolutely vital, therefore, that the promises of God are maintained from generation to generation. And, and how our young people understand the Bible and teach it to the young people is significant. Because the society is telling them different things about sexuality, about morality. And some are succumbing to the teaching of our society. They may not say it publicly, because that's not what we teach at this church, but there's a temptation for people to move from historic Christianity in teaching and sexual ethics, and it can happen quickly. There are now three churches in our denomination, our association in New South Wales, who have publicly on their website, for example, say they affirm same-sex marriage as a good thing of God. Three now. It was two. There's now three. And there'll be ministers who seek to move it in another direction. We hold to the truth. We teach the truth. We remain faithful to the truth. And the elders and their behavior make a big difference. I need to be a, a preacher who teaches the truth, doing it with love and compassion and with discipline and strength but I must not be moved by the false teaching of today's ethics or theology. Let me conclude. 
sound doctrine and godly living, they come together, are fundamental to the protection and growth of God's church. May we never neglect it and may Christian leaders of all types be true and godly. May God help us to do that. Amen.